Hi, Stephanie here. I am an entrepreneur, lobbyist, wife, mother, book lover, and political junkie. I think gender equality is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And I love to learn, especially from other women. So I started Women Don't Do That, a podcast and blog to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Sherry Graydon, founder and catalyst of Informed Opinions, an award-winning author and a women's advocate. Sherry has spent over 25 years shamelessly exploiting media to draw attention to issues she knows and cares about. She now motivates and trains others to do the same, helping them to position themselves as thought leaders. With degrees in theater and communications, she has published two award-winning media literacy books for youth and has been named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. I have to be honest, Sherry's biography was so full and with so many accomplishments and awards that I really had to pare it down and choose what to speak about today. She is so accomplished and really advocates for women. So I am so excited to have her on the show today. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. Can you tell me what does your life look like right now? Well, as COVID recedes, or at least our conversation about it recedes, I'm starting to travel a bit more. Informed Opinions, the organization I lead, is virtual. So we've always been working from home, my colleagues and I. But my my world at Informed Opinions uh, involves a lot of training and speaking. And so prior to the pandemic, I traveled often. And now I'm starting to get back into that routine, sadly compromised by how challenged the airline industry is. But I just got back from Toronto last night and uh, I'm enjoying being in rooms with women again. Yes. Yeah. It's been fantastic. And I can sympathize with the travel piece. My husband travels for work. And so I hear lots of stories about that as well. What motivates you to live your best life? Really, I would say the biggest driving factor, I mean, I have wonderful family and friends and they are always an incentive to show up and be present and be loving. But I would say the amount of change that I believe needs to happen in the world, Mm -hmm. specifically for women and not just white women like me, but diverse women. So yeah, I, I think what motivates me, what gets me out of bed every morning is believing that things could and should be better and I can play a small role in making that happen. Mm, I love that so much and really support that work. Absolutely. That's why I have a podcast like this. So that's great. How has your career path led to you doing the work that you're doing? And what are some of the highlights or challenges that maybe came along the way? Well, You know, it's interesting. I started uh, for the first 16 years of my life. I wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. That was all I wanted to be. And then in grade 10, I had an art teacher who um, assigned the boys one interesting project and the girls another not interesting project. Somehow, because we were girls, we couldn't carve a piece of wood. And I did my obligatory boring project. And then I rescued a, a scrap of wood 
from the bin and I created a carving and the art teacher wouldn't look at it. And that was my first experience of sexism. And it had a catalyzing effect on my, the rest of my life because I switched my elective from art to theater. I ended up studying theater at university. And although I didn't pursue theater as a career in the speaking and training I do in the advocacy work that I do, that theater experience standing up on stage or at the front of a room and speaking and being confident has served me so extraordinarily well. So that was that was a, a pretty pivotal thing. Um, I ended up doing a lot of work in and around media and communications. And that also really informed the direction my life took. I joined the board of the National Canadian Nonprofit Media Watch uh, pretty much 30 years ago at my second board meeting, I went to the bathroom at the wrong time. And when I came back, I was president because this is something they don't teach you. There are no glass ceilings in underfunded women's organizations. And that also was a moment that, that really changed my life and thrust me into a leadership position early on, but around an issue that I knew and cared about, and that was the portrayal and representation of women. And 30 years later, I'm still working in that same arena. And not to say that I haven't done lots of things in between. I've written a column and produced a television series and worked in the premier's office. But this is really the organizing principle for, for my, my career has been using words to advocate for change for women. Mm -hmm. I love that so much. I don't know if you know this, but in my personal life, I am a lobbyist and an advocate. And uh, these issues are, are just so important. I'm so thankful to have women like you leading us um, through that experience. And we're learning to have our own voices and lead as well through that process, which is fantastic. And we'll talk more about that today. You and I know, I think in many ways, why raising women's voices are important. And we have listeners actually all across the globe and I want to just pause for a minute to talk about why it's important for women's voices to be shared in all arenas from business to media. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I so appreciate the question, Stephanie. You know, I think we often have this conversation without unpacking what are the implications? What are the consequences of women's voices not being heard and present? A story that I tell often in the context of informed opinions work is one in 2005, my husband and I were in Montreal, we were cutting across the parking lot of a Catholic church and a television crew doing streeter interviews stopped us and said, the Pope has just died, would you comment? And I said, no, I don't think so and kept walking. And my husband, who had not been to church in 40 years, <laughs> he said, sure, I'll comment. And I turned around kind of stunned, worried what pearls of wisdom were gonna drop from his beautiful mouth. And I, I watched him bow his head and bravely declare, it's a very sad day for Catholics everywhere. And as we continued on our walk, I turned to him and said, honey, that was really obvious. And wouldn't it be great if the next Pope were to bring in a progressive policy on birth control that wouldn't trap millions of poor Catholic women around the world in an endless cycle of childbearing and childrearing and 
David, good feminist that he is, said, yeah, Sherry, that would have been great. Too, too bad you turned down the interview. Mm-hmm. And the irony of that, the, the painful irony of that was number one, his comments made the national news. Mm-hmm. Mine obviously did not. Number two, I had literally done the research documenting how underrepresented women's voices were. And number three, I had been giving media interviews, speaking publicly for decades at that point. I was better equipped than most people to look into the camera. And yet I had declined because I didn't think that my informed opinion about the Pope was relevant. But what was really important and what was missing as a result was that my informed opinion as a woman, now I'm not Catholic and I used birth control for years, but the truth is that most women spend decades of our lives either trying to become pregnant, trying to avoid becoming pregnant (laughs) or becoming pregnant and dealing with the consequences of that that affect everything for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Our brains, our bodies, our perspectives, our priorities, our abilities to multitask. You know, child, that's a defining thing for, for many women, not all women, of course. And so when our life experience informed perspectives are not being heard, are not being integrated into decision-making by governments, by policymakers, that has huge consequences for research, for Mm -hmm. women's health, for reproductive health, for so many things. And I, I know in the US now, women's access to certain kinds of healthcare is increasingly restricted and limited and women's voices absolutely need to be present mm-hmm. in order to inform, inform those. So that's mm-hmm. just one. I mean, I'll, I'll let you jump <laughs> in because I, I could go on. Yeah, no, it's such an important point. And I liked how you talked about how it's hit so many different things. And for instance, I struggle with chronic migraines and there's just not a lot of information on that because research funding hasn't typically gone to issues that impact women more. Yeah. So things like, it's things that we just take for, it's always been this way or it's as is, or you don't even think to question it. And then when you find out that that's why, that like the funding just hasn't been earmarked there. And when you look at the data, it is earmarked for issues that affect men differently then you start to understand the complexity of the problem. And I loved you sharing the story of the Pope. And it reminds us how hard it is to step up. Because like you said, you were were prepared with all the information to know to be able to do that. And it also makes me think about it. And I'll tell this story really quickly. When I was in university, I got to be a part of uh, an organization called Global Vision and travel internationally uh, to represent Canada. And when I was done university and started my career as a professional, I got a phone call one day. I was working in government relations at World Vision Canada. I got a phone call from somebody from global affairs in Canada, so our our foreign department. And they asked me if I would be the youth motivational speaker at the youth G8 summit when it was in Canada. And my initial reaction, Sherry, is I was like, I think you have the wrong person. Like I actually said that. And they were like, no, that's why you are the right person. 
And it was such a fantastic opportunity to be able to go and and do that. But yeah, my initial reaction was just like, eh, I don't really think, I think you have the wrong person. <laughs> and you so know, many of us do that, right? Yeah, that, that's something that I, I underestimated how pervasive that default is for women. Mm-hmm. And I really understand why even very senior, very experienced women who have PhDs, who have been CEOs, default to I'm not the best person. And the Mm -hmm. thing that I think is really important for women to know, two things. Number one, there is no best person because your informed perspective, your life experience, your views and and skills um, are valuable in their own right, but they may be completely different than mine or the immigrant woman living in a small rural community and her life experience and informed perspectives will add a different kind of value. So first of all, there's no one best person. Secondly, that's almost never the bar. Nobody mm-hmm. calls you up and says, are you the best person? Yes. <laughs> and, and thirdly, you know, men don't go there. No. So if my husband gets invited to speak, he doesn't immediately think, oh, I have to be the best person. He thinks, well, you're asking for a reason. Mm-hmm. Sorry you're asking me for a reason and sure, of course I'll comment Mm -hmm. because yeah, I have things to say. I know stuff. Um, try and stop me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I've heard you talk about this and from doing research that the importance of diverse women's perspectives as well. What are some of the barriers that prevent us from integrating those diverse voices? And are there strategies to overcome them? Well, speaking as a white woman who has benefited from and been frankly blind to the privilege that that has given me over the course of my lifetime, Mm -hmm. and that I'm only really over the last 10 years and five years in particular, becoming much more aware of I I think that's probably the biggest barrier Mm -hmm. and the pervasive um, unconscious bias and the you know all of the stereotypes and and beliefs that feed into our willingness and ability to perpetuate the marginalization of people who don't look like the dominant class Mm -hmm. Um, so I think all of those feed into that. And, and it's a, a really lifetime compounding of those privileges. So, you know, I might've believed 10 years ago that I got to write a column for the Vancouver Sun, or I got to work in the premier's office or publish book contracts because I was smart and creative and, and desirable as somebody doing all those things. And that may have been true, but I run into and meet and interact with um, hundreds and hundreds of women every year who did not benefit from the privileges that I grew up with, who are smarter and more creative and more dynamic and have so much to offer than I do, but who happen to be Indigenous or Black or immigrant, Brown, Muslim. And so they have accumulated a lifetime of of obstacles that I did not encounter. Mm -hmm. And there's no easy fix for this, but I think that um, I watched recently 
the movie Deconstructing Karen. I was reading on the plane last night the book that the two uh, producers of that um, that Race to Dinner initiative have written called White White Women. And it's very confronting and I am constantly battling my own reactions to what they're unpacking. But I think that white women need to, in solidarity, really interrogate and challenge ourselves, mm -hmm. the privileges that we have and look for ways to ensure that the voices being heard are not just ours. And we do that at Informed Opinions, we're really deliberate about ensuring that the women featured in our database are from across, not just discipline and sector, but mm -hmm. um, race, ethnicity, religion. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that because I think in day-to-day -day lives, sometimes, unless you're doing this work, sometimes you're not even listening to those conversations or learning from them. And it's so important and that each of us does have a role that we can play. When you talk about informed opinions, can you talk a little bit more about what the organization does and uh, how it supports women? Yeah, so essentially we train smart women to speak up. That's my elevator pitch <laughs> when I'm meeting people for the first time. And I started it in 2010 because I had noticed that in the daily newspaper that I read, women's perspectives on the opinion pages were still at only less than a quarter. This was really just 14 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And there's no good reason for that. And although newspapers are a dying breed and probably many of your listeners don't ever <laughs> get an actual newspaper, the, the news media, legacy news media, wherever you're reading or watching it, still has a significant influence on public conversations, on government priorities. And so I started Informed Opinions with a very small ambition. I didn't want to grow an organization. <laughs> uh, I simply wanted to train smart women who, who had insight into whatever their field or discipline was, train them how to translate what they knew into short form, persuasive, publishable commentary. Mm -hmm. So we still do that. 14 years later, we've trained thousands of women and thousands of women have written and published commentary that has appeared in, in mass disseminated media and helped change conversations and influence policy and position those women for advancement, for appointment to, um, to boards, to jobs, to the Canadian Senate. And that's really important because we need, as we were saying earlier, we need women's insights and intelligence to be added to men's because the sum of those parts is greater than those parts. And it's not that women are better, but we know that solutions and policies will be more effective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have 30 years of research documenting that. Mm -hmm. So we train people. Uh, we train women, we have a database that makes it easy for journalists to find them. Uh, we have, you know, thousands of journalists who subscribe to the database and regularly reach out to women. And we do research documenting the underrepresentation of women so that we can keep going back to journalists and saying, you know, you're still only featuring or quoting or interviewing women. Uh, yesterday, I looked at our gender gap tracker, which is an online device that measures this. 
in real time and it was 29 or 30 percent which is simply unacceptable mm -hmm. and it mirrors the representation of women in Canadian politics which is something else we're also paying attention to now yes because again like media politics has the opportunity to influence direct and change everything else mm -hmm. I've heard you speak on that before when I was doing research for this episode how often when we look at commentary or media it is often from politicians and so what was skewing the data was the fact that there weren't more women in politics and I love that you're doing the research and the data and and the work because so often I think it's easy to just say, oh, that's antidotal or it doesn't really matter. But when we have this data um, about what a difference it makes or about what the numbers actually are, I think it really just helps make the case for the action. And so I, it's just so important to do that. The data really does make a difference. I, I was in Toronto uh, this week and I was speaking to a group of women talking about the imbalance of power in Canada. And in the US, interestingly, it's even worse. Mm. So when I discovered really just six months ago that far from being a leader in terms of women's equality, which I believed like many other Canadians, we were, mm -hmm. in fact, there are 60 other countries who are doing a better job of ensuring women are represented in the halls of power. Yes. The other countries doing better than we are. And in the US, I think instead of being 61st, they're closer to 69th. They were 70th last year when I first looked. And we have been, I think, complacent mm. in Canada and in the US. You know, we see lots of really impressive, visible female role models, whether it's Nancy Pelosi in the Senate in the US or Christian Freeland here in Canada as the um, deputy prime minister and finance minister. But around the world, many, many other countries have been really deliberate about recognizing that democracy depends on representation. Mm -hmm. And if women are 51% of the population and only 30% of the elected officials, mm -hmm. that's actually fundamentally non-undemocratic. So Sherry, yeah. you're, you're tugging at my heartstrings with this one, because something you may not know about me is that I ran for nomination for federal politics and lost and which is actually what the what the what the podcast came out of, which was my experience going door to door and the sexism in terms of comments on how I should describe myself differently because how I was describing myself were like male words or how I should dress or because uh, women would say to me, oh, I have to ask my husband because they're not really engaged or care about politics. And I was like, we need to change this discourse. Like I want women to be inspired to do whatever it is they think they can't do, which is really what I'm trying to do uh, with the podcast. So your your comments definitely uh, hit a nerve in terms of uh, my own passion for seeing uh, more women in the field of politics. And also when you were mentioning how Canada it doesn't do as well compared to other countries. It kind of made me sad, but then it also makes me happy that there's so many doing better because we do need to do better and have that to aspire to, um, which is uh, really exciting. How can we encourage more women and support more women to step up to be thought leaders or to be experts in their fields? And I know you do some of this at a formed opinions. 
Yeah, we do. Just before I answer that question, I want to salute you, Stephanie, for oh. running because so many, so many women and men, but women even more so, I think, are reluctant to do that for all sorts of predictable reasons <laughs> because it's hard work, it's risky, it's mm -hmm. failing publicly, you're putting yourself out there. And so I really just want to salute you for, for doing that. Thank you. I will add to that. I definitely think the experience is probably one of the biggest like growth moments I've had in my life, right? Where uh, the riding that I was running in was safe. So I really the, the run for becoming MP was the nomination. It was a really uh, challenging race. And uh, afterwards, really taking some time to reflect on what did I want my life to look like? What did I want to contribute to? What did I want to do for work? Starting the podcast, changing my career path a bit. It is very life impacting to take on uh, those kinds of things. And in some ways, really see what you're capable of and what comes after, which is always exciting. So what I wanted to ask you about is how do we encourage more women to step up? Okay, yes. So that is, that became a big part of what Informed Opinions does. And it wasn't something that I expected. I mm -hmm. thought I'll just train women to do media interviews and to write op-eds and they'll come because, you know, we offer really great training. And what I had not anticipated was that I would have to do the motivation piece. And one of the things I often say in workshops and keynotes is, you know, when you get asked and your default is, I'm not the best person, or you don't apply for the job until you have all 10 criteria because you think that's necessary. What you need to do is instead choose to behave like a reasonable man, a reasonable white man. <laughs> so you look at the opportunity and you think, okay, what would, in my case, this is easy for me, I say, what would my husband do? What would my male colleague do um, if asked or seeing this job description or being given an opportunity to stand on stage and say what you think, um, they would almost always say yes. Mm -hmm. And and really, the, the other thing we encourage people to do is to draw a Venn diagram to say, okay, in one circle, what is it that is being asked in this job or in this public speaking opportunity or in this moment? in the meeting with my colleagues, maybe it's a smaller stage, mm -hmm. what is it that's being asked here? And then in the second circle, you put, what is it that I know? Mm -hmm. And there will be an intersection between those two circles or you wouldn't be in the room, you wouldn't be asked. And then you focus on that. And so instead of the bar being, am I the best person? The question we should ask ourselves is, can I add value that mm -hmm. will, change the conversation, will contribute to the decision we're collectively making that will help people in this audience understand an issue that I know in a really deep way better. That's, that's I think, a really motivating thing to one, you know, the reasonable male. And another thing I think that is so many women experience is that they say no to something. They decline to speak mm -hmm. up. And then they see that guy in the next office who they know, and he may be smart and he may be capable, but he's not better than she is. And so you see him on television or getting promoted and you think, well, I could have done as good a job as he is. Mm 
Yes. And so I, I don't know a woman who's over 30 who hasn't already had that experience. Mm -hmm. And so really just reminding women that, yeah, this is our reality mm -hmm. and we do have some power to change it. Yes. We don't have all the power, mm -hmm. but we do have some power. It's true. In so many situations, we need to say yes more. And we often talk about, you know, when you're presented with something to trust your gut. And I always say, okay, well, yes, trust your gut unless you're just saying no to something because you're scared, right? Like your mm -hmm. gut, your gut might say that's wrong or it's not good timing. And maybe that will be true. But if it's just, oh, I was asked to do this TV interview and my gut is telling me no because I'm scared, then the answer should be yes. Yeah. And that it's not easy and it takes practice. And the other thing I would say is the more you do it, the easier it becomes. The first Absolutely. time you're terrified, right? And then over time, it gets better. It does absolutely get better. And, you know, we offer all sorts of workshops to help women become more confident and know preparation strategies for media interviews. For example, we do a masterclass in, in public speaking that also is really practically applied focus where we walk people through, okay, when you're preparing, these are five things that you can do. So in the moment, you will not have a racing heart or you yes. will be able to bridge from the question you got to the answer that you want to deliver. And there are lots of skills and strategies that, that are shareable. Our website, informedopinions.org, we have a learning hub where we have all sorts of free resources that are also available to mm -hmm. support women overcoming all of the natural inclinations we might have to stay stay quiet. Mm -hmm. I love that you shared that because it's very practical, right? Where do you start? Where do you get more information? And it did make me think about for some women, they will need to do the work ahead of time to be able to say yes. So doing things like media training with you, Sherry, or joining some of your workshops. So then they do feel prepared. And so I hope that some of you do check out um, Sherry's work and informed opinions so that you'll feel more prepared to say yes next time. I want to ask you if there is any final advice you'd like to give the listeners as we jump into some rapid fire questions. Okay, well, two, two pieces of advice are really present for me these days. And one is to be open to having your biases and preconceptions challenged. Mm -hmm. And I find that serves me in so many ways. If I, in, in speaking, if I walk to the front of the room and I am now being positioned as an authority, but I don't, I don't have any attachment to being the best person or having to know it all, or not being wrong, then in a moment, if I don't know an answer, mm -hmm. or somebody disagrees with me, I can be open to that and nod my head and say, oh, though, that's so interesting. So I, mm -hmm. I think that's a, a critical thing, being open to having your, your biases challenged. And then the other thing is to have a purpose, to pursue a purpose, because um, that's bigger than yourself. I think that's, yeah. I love that. What is the best rule you ever broke? Speaking my mind, even when it might not have been welcome. Can you name another woman that inspires you? 
where to start Jane Goodall, Michelle Obama, Gloria Steinem. Yeah. So many. Is there a podcast that you're loving? I walk every day and I listen to listen to podcasts every day. And so they range from the New York Times daily podcast, the New Yorker fiction podcast. Uh, we can do hard things with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach and mm. um, yeah, others that come up. Uh, but those three are current. Okay. Can you tell us about a book that made you wiser? Miriam Taves, Women Talking. Mm, on which Sarah Polly's movie was based. Yes. If you haven't seen it, every woman in the world should watch that movie. And I've listened be- to some interviews that Sarah's done. It, but I haven't watched it yet. It's on my list. So I will have to do that. Do it, do it with other women. That's, okay. That's I did it with my husband. I don't regret having done that. <laughs> I really have yearned to talk about it with uh, with women afterwards. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. I know there'll be so much wisdom for our listeners to soak up and more information for them to learn from you um, as they continue to follow you and learn more about your work. And thank you for spending your time with us today. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Don't Do That. I hope you feel inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Stay connected on Twitter and Instagram at Women Don't Do That. I would love to have you join the conversation, so make sure you join our next Instagram Live. Find all our podcast and blog content at womendontdothat.com. Join me next time.